Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the major developments shaping the region. This week, we'll be looking at Syria and the United States' war against the Islamic State. Syria's Kurds played a pivotal role in helping the US-led coalition bring down the Islamic State's so-called caliphate. Much like their brethren across the border in Iraq, they too are nervous about US forces withdrawing from Syria, just as they have from Afghanistan. Turkey recently joined Russia in calling for the US to do just that. With us here today to discuss all these developments is Aaron Stein, Director of Research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia, and the author of the soon-to-be-released The US War Against ISIS, How America and Its Allies Defeated the Caliphate. So welcome to the show, Aaron. Um, It's great to have you on, and I really, really enjoyed your book, learned so much about what went down in Syria between Turkey and the United States, ISIS, all of that fascinating stuff. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you and happy you enjoyed it. So looking at the U.S. military intervention in Afghanistan and its involvement in the Syrian conflict, uh, starting with the CIA's arming and training of Sunni opposition, which you described in great detail as they were seeking to topple Assad, and then taking a totally different turn with the emergence of the Islamic State and the partnership with the Syrian Kurds, I mean, how would you compare these two conflicts, setting aside, obviously, the magnitude and the length of the Afghanistan war? How do these two interventions compare? And is the by, with, and through the new doctrine for foreign intervention using proxy forces to get the job done? Well, I mean, I would say if you look at the the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, there are some general similarities at the outset. You know, one is is that is that the the original U.S. invasion in Afghanistan w- was sort of the pioneer in the light foot, footprint approach, which was small numbers of CIA teams, followed later by special forces teams, would plug into indigenous sort of groups or militias that would then be able to liaise with U.S. air power. The Syria conflict obviously took place. Decade, or well over a decade later. So the technology and the capabilities of those forces that went to war uh, in Syria once the overt U.S. military intervention began was, you know, night and day difference, but more or less the same sort of you know, thrust, which is to partner to keep U.S. forces small, to use U.S. air power, and to fight, you know, a what is essentially a conventional fight for territory against a. You know, a state actor. If we if we were to just you know basically do away with the fact that ISIS is a non-state actor, but it controlled a large swath of territory, that there are broad similarities. The CIA program, you know, as I detail in the book, or you know, as U.S. officials would say, the program were not allowed to be talked about that they're not allowed to talk about, but they could talk about it in broad brushstrokes. Was far larger than people really give it credit for. You know, and it really stemmed out of a political decision to try and wrangle the opposition, not necessarily to topple the government, although that there were people who wanted that program to topple the, uh, the Syrian government, but also to try and inflict some sort of leverage over the opposition, the broad sort of swath of the of the anti-Assad opposition 
to get them to at least march in some respects to uh, to the U.S. drumbeat. The program by U.S. administration officials did begin slowly, you know, by their own admission, I should say, and really began to expand after the chemical weapons attack in 2013. You know, and the scale and scope of this program, as I said, was quite large, um, and it had unintended, unintended consequences. You know, its actual successes, and you can't see me, I'm using air quotes, led to considerable regime insecurity. And I argue, or at least I think it's quite clear, and that US officials share this, or at least the ones I interviewed for the book, that it was one of the many causal factors that led for the Russians to intervene and deepen the Iranian involvement in the conflict, which even at the outset was already quite large. So how was that a success? It's, it was clearly, you know, uh, I mean, the unintended consequences were obviously very bad ones, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say that there are a couple of things that U.S. officials admitted to me in the book and the research for the book, which, again, I, I think if you were following the conflict quite closely, isn't, you know, wasn't that much of a surprise if you're reading it or for people who will read it. But it was good to have it, it, it you know, explained in clear detail, which is that the provision of weapons through the CIA program allowed for the opposite opposition to sort of congeal and to take back territory culminating in the 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 the, the, the ousting of, of of Assad forces from Idlib and the conclusion that the that the regime was too weak to go on offense so that the 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 uh, the conflict would actually stalemate uh, and so that was one success and I think where US officials didn't think this through or at least, the Russians acted in ways that they had not previously, which is that the Russians decided to actually deploy forces to counteract uh, 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 U.S. operations uh, in Syria. And again, this program, the CIA program, was the sort of model that the U.S. ultimately adopted for the train equip program, which, as I draw, document in the book, ensnared the U.S. and Turkey. Uh, th through through for, for multiple years of negotiations and also included uh, a contingent down in Jordan. And so you ended up ultimately, though, with a, a kind of a Frankenstein monster, didn't you? I mean, we all know how awful ISIS is, but you also have this Syrian National Army with its various components, this Turkish-backed Sunni rebel force that, that's committing all kinds of atrocities including against uh, the U.S. Uh, ally, the Syrian Democratic Forces. You have a fragmented country, highly unstable. So my question is, you know, what actually did the United States think it was trying to achieve when it embarked on all of this? Well, you know, you have to separate the two programs, right? So the clandestine program versus the overt intervention. The clandestine program was to try and corral the opposition, to solidify them as much as possible, to strengthen their hands in negotiations for, in, in negotiations with the regime or, you know, elements of the regime to, to try and at least rest some constitutional changes or some political changes that the U.S. Uh, pushed for on the diplomatic side, whether it be- But you point out very, you know, in your book that already Qatar was sort of, you know, running amok with its weapons and sort of supporting these very radical groups. And, you know, wasn't that a red flag? I mean, why did it take so long for the U.S. to realize that this wasn't really going in the way it wanted it to? 
Well, one of the things officials pointed out to me in the book is, is that you know, the CIA was in charge of both the provisions of the weapons and then analyzing the conflict. And so there, there was inherent tension there, where as the task was handed to the CIA, the CIA was also, was also looking after its own progress. And so you would get these neat maps, you know, sort of the radicals are in this pocket, the non-radicals <laughs> are in this pocket yeah. to show that there was um, progress going on, right? And ultimately what happened, I think one of the best quotes in the book from, from, from somebody involved in this is that towards the end you know, of the overt and least large-scale U.S. Inter- uh, covert program, sort of 2015 timeframe, was that they all just congealed, right? And that the radicals became the spearhead force and that the groups that the U.S. were arming became the anti-regime, sort of anti-armor auxiliaries to these radical forces. So they weren't strong enough to overthrow them but they ultimately became symbiotic. One of the first moves that they do is to close off this program. And for U.S. officials that were involved in this, they didn't like this program. You know, they, they, they recognized that there were problems, but they ultimately saw it as something that they should have traded um, with the Russians or others for some sort of concessions on the Russian side, deprived the U.S. of a tool, even if that tool was um, imperfect. So before we turn to the more successful sort of collaboration with the Syrian Kurds, I just want to ask you, Aaron, how would you, in what ways would you say that this administration's approach is different to that of the Obama administration? We all can see how it's different from the Trump administration, you know, far less ideological, not obsessed with Iran and Russia and all of that. But you know, how is Biden different from Obama on this Syria issue? Well, I mean, I think we first have to acknowledge is that they inherited um, a conflict that is different than the Obama administration left and that the Trump administration sort of oversaw. But it is not where, you know, and I, I document this in the book as well, it's more or less where the, the Obama administration officials thought it would be going which is that you know, after you know, Raqqa was conquered and the US made it out to the border with Iraq is that these battle lines would sort of harden and that those would become the terms of negotiations with the other external powers to the conflict, most, most, most notably being uh, um, 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 Russia. But also, as you pointed out in your question, there wasn't such an allergy in the Obama administration, continuing now into the Biden administration, to speaking with Iran. Uh, and those really formed around the nuclear talks. But more now, more specifically, the Biden administration has, has just scaled back the scope and the ambitions of the policy. The Obama administration did have a regime change policy. I mean, that was the intent of the CIA program, whether it came about politically or militarily, it was for Bashar to go or he, to go in some sort of managed transition that didn't lead to the chaos that you saw in Libya in 2011, but something that approximated regime change, whether to a transitional governing body or something along those lines. The Biden folks have gotten rid of that, right? And it's just basically hold the line, go after ISIS elements in the Northeast, and presumably they've been very tight-lipped about this, but you know, use this as part of the number of items of which they are talking with, with the Russians to try and reach some sort of agreement, maybe too strong of a word, but understanding about the future of the Syrian state. So turning to the Kurds, um, they had this very successful relationship, and I'll repeat my previous question, this new model of byway and through. Is that sort of the blueprint for the future, and it, was that sort of minted in, in, in Northeast Syria? 
I'd say one of the strengths of the book is that it goes into that big sort of challenging point of June, 2014, the, 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 oh, the, can I swear on the podcast? <laughs> um, the OS word moment, right? And uh-huh. that's, a, that's a quote from the book. It's, it's the OS word moment where there's all these sort of debates fulminating about how the U.S. should intervene in Syria with military force. And then Mosul falls. And then the need for authorities um, congressional or legal authorities to, prox- to prosecute that war because the costs involved for a overt train equipped program, not the CIA program, but an overt military led train equipped program was $500 million, you know, far more than what is just you, you can pull off the shelf and just go to war with in a, in a small clandestine way. You know, and then the other aspect of this is, is that when the Islamic State turned on Sinjar, you had a number of different things come together, geography, political alignment historically with the U.S. and the Iraqi Kurds, and you have the first U.S. forces into Iraq that's you know, not acknowledged, but it was JSOC and as part of Delta Force with, with some contingents attached to it of special forces who were introduced to the, you know, the YPG, you know, and the YPG becomes the main vehicle through which to prosecute the war in the Northeast for U.S. special operators to partner with them, to embed with them, and to begin to liaise, to bring air power to the fight. And of course, the main battle that proved this model was Kobani. You know, it was ISIS clumps together on this road. They're quite stupid in how they, in how they try and attack the city. And you bring the full weight sort of of the U.S. Air Force down on them and you rest back control. So on the one hand, you have this super successful relationship, no U.S. casualties in combat against ISIS, thanks to this, you know, group that they were allied with, the Syrian Kurds, but at the same time, huge fallout in the relationship with Turkey, because Turkey, you know, somewhat credibly argues that the YPG and the PKK are are pretty much the same thing. So. Going forward, will the U.S. be able to sustain this relationship with the Syrian Kurds? Is the need for that U.S. presence, you know, great enough that it warrants the continued sort of decline in the U.S.-Turkish relationship? Because that certainly seems to be one of the drivers. And you just heard Erdogan say that he believes uh, the U.S. should be out of Syria. Yeah. So one thing, you know, through the through the research of this book is is that you, you you can't think of it as sort of like one big battle space, right? Where like Islamic State is, you know, the war was subdivided for for simplicity's sake into like three blocks. You had the Iraq block, you had the Northeast block, and then you had the Mambij pocket block, and the Mambij pocket block, and then each one had assigned, you know, sort of. Um, weighting of priorities. Iraq was always the main theater. Syria was the secondary theater, right? And then within Syria, the, 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 the tertiary theater was the Mambish pocket. And the Mambish pocket was the area through which the U.S. and Turkey most, you know, engaged the most, where there was the most discussions on a joint strategy. This has been documented in the press, sort of, you know, with the, uh, with the standing up of the train and equip program out of Turkey to bring people out of Syria for training in Turkey by U.S. forces and then reinsertion back into the Mambish pocket. The story has been widely told, you know, about, you know, the first group that went back in this Division 30. 
and how they got their clock cleaned by by uh, by Jabhat al-Nusra upon their reinsertion for a number of reasons, right? And I document why this doesn't work. But the planning didn't stop there, right? The planning continued thereafter, and the concept of operations was rethought, and it was called a Gates Noble. That was the word given to it. And it was the dedication of U.S. and Turkish assets to this push off of, you know, this, what they called the Mara Line, which is, you know, from, from Marea up to, to uh, Jarablus, up to the Turkish border, to push across to try and keep the, uh, try and oust ISIS from its territory and to keep the YPG SDF from crossing the river, which was the Turkish Red Line. This never went well, and this never went well for a number of reasons, one of which was because that the groups were involved there were fragmented and not good. They weren't good at fighting. The U.S. did try and offset this by bringing in some of the CIA-trained groups. And for a number of reasons I document in the book, for, for the authorities used for airstrikes, there had to be some CIA groups in certain places to use force and yada, yada, yada. It's a really interesting discussion. It doesn't go well. But that was always the plan. And then a number of interceding incidents pop into this. One is, is that you had the Russian intervention. And then following the Russian intervention, you had the Turkish shoot down of a Russian jet. Now, after the Turks shot down that Su-24 in November 2015, Ankara no longer overflew northeastern Syria. And that's important because the Turkish Air Force was supplementing the U.S. Air Force in this sparsely patrolled place. And so you lost bombs. So Turkey could still bomb from, Tur from inside its own territory into Syria. But, you know, I talked to somebody who knows the situation really well. And he said, well, those airstrikes took nine minutes from bomb release to impact. So you can only hit- But wait, why would, why would Turkey not be overflying Northeast Syria, which is a US zone, because it shot down a Russian plane in a Russian zone? So the Russians threatened down to shoot down all Turks and they asked the US to remove Turkey from what's called the air tasking order and the US complied. Mm, um, so the Russians applied leverage. And, you know, people think that deconfliction is this really neat thing and that we never ran across Russians. In those early days, the deconfliction wasn't as robust as it is, is now. And Azaz and Jarablus sort of all throughout that pocket was the merge point for Russians flying north, for the regime flying north, for Turks flying south, and from Americans flying, you know, south, you know, from south, from, from inside Turkey or, or sometimes crisscrossing from Iraq. So you had a whole bunch of air forces running into each other up there and nobody wanted to fight the Russians. And so you had the, the, the withdrawal of U.S. forces. You even had the removal of U.S. F-16s and replacement with A-10s just because they look different on radar. So there wouldn't be any sort of like mis-ID, missile launch from S-400s that, that the Russians had. Pulled. And this was under Obama, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, because time has lost all meaning. Sometimes I, I, I get my uh, I get my president screwed up. But, yeah, oh, I mean, can we, can we envisage a scenario then going back to my original question where over mm -hmm. time the U.S., you know, weighs the pros and cons and how it affects its relationship with all these different actors, well, Turkey, Russia, et cetera, and decide, well, we don't really need to be here anymore, even though they've told the Kurds they will be at least for the next three or four years. I mean, can you see them changing their minds? I know that the Kurds are certainly very concerned about this, given especially what just happened in Afghanistan. Yeah. No, I, I you know, the, the, the U.S. position is, is quite stable. 
you know, it was made unstable by the October 2019 Turkish invasion, you know, Operation Peace Spring, which ousted U.S. forces from the border. But U.S. and, and then more importantly, it upended the deconfliction arrangement that was in place with the Russian Air Force. So the Russian Air Force, more or less, would notify the U.S. if it would fly across the, the, the Euphrates River. Not all of the time. And you, you can read the book for when we nearly shot at each other multiple times. But after the Turkish invasion, Russian forces moved north. Turkish forces moved south. And so U.S. forces, it got a little messy, but we have retrenched and we have solidified those deconfliction arrangements with the Russians. And so the U.S. presence is, is stable at the moment. And so, no. And then the U.S. political messaging, you know, from the Biden, from, from President Biden through his senior staff on down, is, is that the U.S. isn't leaving. And so I tend to take people at their word. It, it, it's my number one rule in, in political analyst, uh, political uh -huh. analysis. Don't be too clever. <laughs> if they tell you they're staying, they're staying. And so I, I think that's more or less. And what's the strategic purpose of that? Uh, well, I mean, that's up to them. Um, I, I, I think that the, the, that the, that the, the strategic purpose has become a little muddled, uh, quite muddled, actually. But I think realistically, it's that it's become an extension of the U.S. presence in Iraq, which is enduring. Um, the mission is, has shifted from one of direct action to one of just advising and assisting. And the advise and assist mission is to enable the elite forces in Iraq, whether it be the CTS or in, or in, uh, in Syria, it's just the SDF more broadly, to continue to put pressure on ISIS, uh, ISIS cells in the country. Which remain a big threat, right, still? I mean, ISIS isn't gone. It is a big threat. It's a localized threat, though. And then, again, as, as to bring it full circle back to your first question, you know, we're recording this shortly after the, um, uh, the, the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the sort of real push, you know, now for the Biden administration to begin its, uh, its own formulation of a national defense strategy, uh, which, you know, no big secret that the top tier priorities for the United States will be China, Russia, followed by you know, secondary actors, whether that be Iran and North Korea, with terrorism trailing behind that. So at best, it's the fifth most pressing um, issue for US policymakers to worry about. And I would say it's a distant five behind uh, the main threats identified, which are China and Russia. One final question, since we're running out of time, Aaron, is you say, I was quite struck by you saying that, you know, Turkey is kind of unfairly labeled as a sort of uh, enabler, supporter, mentor of the Islamic State. Uh, and you mentioned that specifically in reference to what happened in Mosul. Could you sort of expound on that a bit? Because it's sort of almost accepted conventional wisdom that, you know, Turkey and ISIS have sort of been bedfellows of some kind. Yeah, I and mean, I, you know, there's a number of reasons why that's become accepted. You know, from Turkey's support and the Iraqi political structure pre 2014 for political actors who were calling essentially for a, a, a Sunni autonomous zone uh, similar to the KRG, and also the fact that its border was the main transit point for foreign fighters and the materiel used to sustain Islamic State rule. That's been quite damaging to Turkey, both internationally and with its own population. You know, uh, uh, the Kurds in particular, um, sort of PKK sympathetic Kurds inside Turkey, which obviously have synergies with the uh, with the YPG in northeastern Syria, just take it as a fact that Turkey supported Islamic State. 
It increases polarization. The polarization increases the likelihood of violence, and that violence sustains itself, you know, through um, through conflict, you know, between Turkey and the PKK itself. But also, what we saw in October was that 2015, you know, yeah. in October 2015 with the riots um, in southeastern Turkey that 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 ended the 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 troubled, but nevertheless, like promising um peace talks between the pkk and the akp uh uh and which i think you know was one of the main contributing factors to the to the deterioration of u.s turkish relations i know we're running out of time but one thing that u.s officials would would underscore to me in interviews that i did about um joint planning um between the u.s and turkey for operations against islamic state which is before and after the, that, that the collapse of the peace process was like night and day. So things that Turkey was willing to tolerate with the YPG east of the river, YPG SDF, completely evaporated after, uh, a, a, after the end of the peace process. So what was once possible became impossible. And then down at the tactical level, when you had U.S. and Turkish troops, you know, at the very low levels interacting, when things got politically hot, you had Turkish troops on, you know, speaking to their U.S. counterparts parroting the pro-government press, you know, hindering even basic stuff like joint training, not ending it, but just making things more difficult. And of course, that distrust um, stemmed from U.S. concerns, particularly at the lower level that Turkey was enabling the Islamic State, and on the Turkish side that the U.S. was empowering the PKK. Well, clearly also, you know, they were certainly not enforcing that order very tightly, were they? So you had so many of all of these foreign fighters go through Turkey, obviously. Um, so, well, that would became a big problem, you know, like the the level of trust, particularly, you know, like again, you have to you 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 have to think about the comp. You know, it, it wasn't just the U.S. military, you know, and you often hear Turks saying something like, "This was Central Command." You know, CENTCOM is the big bad boogeyman. You have to distill and delineate who was doing the fighting. So, if you had U.S. special forces, you know, sort of overt, quote, you know, quote unquote, whites off many of whom were based in Turkey, there was more of an understanding of Turkish anger amongst those people. While they supported the SDF-led strategy, they, they, they understood the nuance, they could grapple with the nuance, and that they were more supportive of things like joint planning and the Mambish pocket. Whereas the guys who never stepped foot outside of Syria into Turkey, those being the JSOC or Delta Force guys, they were convinced that the Turks were in some ways enabling the Islamic State. And the Turks were equally suspicious of the JSOC guys because, you know, they were doing things that were outside of the visibility of their liaisons um, uh, uh, in the U.S. military. You know, like, so, you know, say, you know, planning for Raqqa or say plan, you know, you would have a JSOC representative. I, 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 I talk about this in the book after the U.S., you know, went ahead and, and crossed the river with the, with the SDF YPG would go to Ankara and try and put pressure on the Turks by saying stuff like Dabak in a week, Dabak in a week, we'll connect the cantons. You know, the intent was that the, the SDF was never going to go, but it was sort of US arrogance that if we put enough pressure on these guys, they'll finally do something about their border. Well, but then in the meantime, something else happened, you know, these, especially these female fighters, YPG fighters managed to capture the imagination of Western public opinion and also, you know, the Congress too, you, that you now have a, a sort of quite a vocal and loyal um, group of people who, who support the Kurds now. 
Yeah. Um, and that's something I guess Turkey never reckoned for. And maybe perhaps even the administration didn't reckon for, but they have to now take into account. Well, one thing I document in the book is how fast this all went, right? It went from the O S word moment in June 2014 to US for you know to the, the the opening airstrikes against ISIS shortly thereafter. You know, and then you had the insertion of 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 sort of you had the insertion of US forces into Sinjar. And then all of a sudden Kobani happens and then they turn the tide and then this ragtag group of, of, of YPG militias and US air power have almost connected, you know, Kobani and, and Jazeera cantons. It was only at that moment where it became clear to everybody is that there had to be some vetting on this partner force and there had to be all this stuff. You know, things move really quickly. And when things move really quickly is when you began to run into all these problems. But because things move really quickly and you had this lionization of the YPG in particular over the Battle of Kobani, I would say it wasn't just on the cover of, say, Vanity Fair, where you had the sort of chicks with guns, right? You had the entirety of the apparatus look at these people as the vanguard in the fight against Islamic State. Because remember, this was the first victory in the war. You know, the Mosul Dam was the first operation, and I go into that a little bit because it proved the concept, but Kobani was the first victory. And then all of a sudden you have these people, and, yeah. uh, and, and it, it, it really just took off from there. The war plan slowed down, you know, I will say this, because people were risk averse about pissing off Turkey. The original war plan, as I document in the book, was just a jet to Raqqa. It was to leave Membish to the Turks. It was only after um, uh, the, the, the concept of operations for the Membish pocket, first with the, the train and equip, and then with the Gate Noble collapsed. And then you had the exodus of Islamic State fighters via Membish from Turkey to France for the Paris attacks that the dual plan to cut the border off really solidified and congealed. But the original plan was Raqqa, Mosul, and get out. But Mambish And the rest is history. The rest and now, is history. Now, now, I guess Erdogan, having been snubbed by Biden at the UNGA, has decided he wants to be friends with Putin again. Let's see how that all goes. Well, it was a fascinating conversation, definitely a fascinating book. And we hope that you will continue writing more books, Aaron. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amberin Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. 
You can subscribe to all three Almanet podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. And this brings us to the end of this week's podcast. I hope you'll join us again next week for another podcast with another very interesting guest on the Middle East. Thanks and goodbye. Thank you.